Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe and your host for this episode of New Books in Science Fiction, the It's a Woman's World edition. I'm delighted to have back on the show one of my favorite authors. Meg Elison made a splash in the world of science fiction with her first novel, The Book of the Unnamed Midwife, which was published in 2014 and won the Philip K. Dick Award. Now her second book, The Book of Etta, appears to be headed down a similar path because it, too, just received a Philip K. Dick Award nomination. As Maggie Lisson says in her bio, she is a high school dropout and a graduate of UC Berkeley. And she also notes she writes like she's running out of time. Fortunately, she's taking a little time today to talk to me, and she's with me now from her home in Oakland, California. Hi, Meg. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Rob. Thank you very much for having me back. This is lovely. Well, congratulations on your Philip K. Dick Award nomination. Thank you very much. I was totally overwhelmed to be nominated again. And I've been reading the other books on the slate, and it's a huge, huge compliment to be ranked with people like those. Well, I, it looks like 2017 was a really busy year for you. you. Not only did you publish the book of Edda, but you've published six short stories. And I'm going to take a wild guess that you've been working hard on the third installment to your Road to Nowhere series. That would be a very good and not so wild guess at all. Yes, I have been. I've also got a number of other books in the works. 2017 was extremely busy for me. I wrote three books last year, and I went after short stories really hard too. So yes to all of that. Wow, you wrote three books. So are the, are are they all destined for publication? I would really like to think that they're all ultimately destined for publication, but one never knows how that will go. Uh, but uh, I would I would like to say that they'll, you'll be hearing more about them soon, uh, both in the world, uh, the road to nowhere world and in other things and maybe even other genres. Ooh, excellent. All right. Well, maybe we can finish the interview with just a, a little preview if you're in the mood to give that. I'd love to. But for now, why don't we focus on, well, we'll focus on the book of Edda. And I thought maybe for those who aren't familiar with the book of the unnamed midwife, maybe you could just kind of give a quick recap of what precedes the Book of Edda. Absolutely. So the Book of Edda is definitely a sequel. It's the second in a series of three, but a person could pick it up and jump in without having read the Book of the Unnamed Midwife. So what that person would need to know is the Book of the Unnamed Midwife is a post-apocalyptic adventure story with a female hero. It starts with a nurse midwife here in the Bay Area who wakes up to a world where a terrible plague has decimated the human population. And this plague is particularly dangerous for women and children with the result that there's one woman left on earth for every 10 men and childbirth is now extremely difficult and extremely dangerous. So the result is that women become something of a commodity, birth becomes extremely important to nearly everyone, and it's not a pleasant world for anybody to live in. Uh, Edda is not a descendant of the midwife, not in a literal sense, but uh, they do inherit a world and a a small civilization, a small village that the midwife helped to establish. So this book picks up 100 years after the last book ends. Right. It's set, as you say, 100 years mm-hmm. after the midwife's story. 
And as the title of your book suggests, the midwife's writing has become something like a Bible, which the residents of this town called Nowhere turn to for guidance and inspiration. Why did you decide to leap so far into the future with the Book of Edda and turn the Book of the Unnamed Midwife into what's essentially the foundational Bible-like book for this, for this new society? So I wanted to move really far into the future so that I'd be free to pick up with new characters, letting the old characters uh, naturally pass away, and to, to really look at the ways that civilizations drift from what the founders intended. So even with the Book of the Unnamed Midwife functioning as this kind of tribal diary or guiding light or Bible, as you put it, uh, for these people, they're still not exactly living the way the midwife would have had them live. They develop their own prejudices, their own superstitions, their own beliefs about what she left behind, and, and they have to live in a world that is different than the world she lived in. And she remembers the world we're in now, the world as it was, and uh, characters around Edda have only experienced uh, the world that was left behind. So I love the way that people like to reinterpret, like, say, the foundational documents of the United States and say, this is what the founders intended, when the truth is the founders could never have imagined anything like what we have now. So that drift just endlessly fascinates me. So I really wanted to push further into the future to explore that. Let's talk a little bit about who Etta is, because she's, she's really not like the other women of the community in which she's raised, of this town called Nowhere. Women in, in Nowhere are expected to become mothers or midwives, but Etta wants to become something else. She wants to become a raider. So maybe you could explain what a raider is and talk a little bit about why you were drawn to her. She's sort of a mix of a hero and a misfit, and you know why you built the story around her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, being a raider to me seems like the most interesting way to spend time in a world like Nowhere. I mean, being a mother is a great and incredible and important job, and being a midwife is just as great and incredible and important. But people like Etta often grow up feeling that the strictures imposed on them because of their assumed gender don't suit them at all. They don't suit what they want or who they want to be. So in Etta, I get a chance to react against a lot of the gender roles that are imposed on women, even in our own world, and to explore what it looks like to pursue your individual destiny when what you want runs so counter to what everybody wants for you. It also, in a practical sense, allows me to uh, explore other communities. I mean, if a person only spends all their time in nowhere, they only know nowhere's, nowhere's ways. They know a very limited number of people, and they're only exposed to one, maybe a couple of customs, depending on how big that settlement is. So by following Etta around, the, it's, it's set in the Missouri area. So following Etta around through Kansas and St. Louis and just a little bit south of Missouri as well, we get to see the way that those communities have evolved in extremely different ways based on who their founders were and what they value and what they decided to take on as the principles of their lives. So I had two major influences when I was writing this, both in who Etta is and how that exploration takes place. So for who Etta is, it was Virginia Woolf's Orlando, which is a book about a person who changes gender halfway through their life. And for the surrounding area, it was Jonathan Swift's story, Gulliver's Travels. And uh, Swift really took the opportunity to lampoon society and what he saw as its flaws by traveling to different places and observing their customs. So I wanted to put Virginia Woolf's Orlando into Gulliver's shoes and to see all the things that we could say about people through doing that. That's great. I also thought of the Odyssey as well, where Odysseus walked into such different worlds and different dangers. It was never safe wherever he went. Absolutely. 
Now, I was definitely inspired by stories like the Odyssey, and of course, Swift was as well. And uh, and that danger is very real. I mean, Edda doesn't encounter a cyclops, but Edda definitely encounters people uh, who read her or him as various things and uh, have to decide how to treat them based on that. Well, as you say, him or her, and that's because Edda disguises herself as a man when she's traveling on her own, and that's really following in the footsteps of the midwife who does something similar really purely to survive. When the midwife does it, she doesn't want anyone to know she's a woman because if she's a, a woman in her world right after the, the end of civilization, basically, she could be raped and enslaved. And Etta faces some of those similar risks. But interestingly, you know, she, it's for her not just about trying to be safe. She's actually more comfortable often being male. But interestingly, I thought um, for her, it isn't easy. It's almost as if gender fluidity is just as challenging in her world as it is today in most societies. And I guess I was trying to find a, if there was a question in there somewhere. <laughs> you know, I wondered if you were speculating, you know, that the obstacles for trans people, or as we would call them today, people who are trans, you know, aren't, these obstacles aren't going to go away or not very easily. And I wonder what you think it would be required to create a society where maybe gender fluidity is more accepted. So exactly as you said, I wanted to take something that the midwife did out of necessity and because it was safer for her and turn it into something else. I think Etta, like a lot of people, when they have their first experience of taking on the guise of another gender, she they find themselves much more comfortable in the guise of that other gender for reasons of self-expression or for reasons of who they are. I I don't think that those obstacles necessarily have to exist or that things have to get more difficult for trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming people, but that things for those people do become more dangerous when a society becomes more essentialist about gender, when we assign specific roles and expectations to people with certain bodies, and more importantly, when we destroy the research that supports their normalcy and their right to exist. There's a wonderful story that's being circulated a lot these days about there's a, a series of famous photos from a Nazi book burning and everybody says, oh yeah, Nazis are terrible and they burn books and those things are true. But that particular book burning was specifically lighting up a research library that was doing all kinds of study into gender and sexuality and was compiling the work of the first psychologist who was studying trans folks. So when we destroy our history or when we cut off our links to it, we're more vulnerable to those attacks that say there never used to be this many trans people and they're, they're an aberration and this is just a new trendy thing. That's never true. But for people who are living in a, a highly separate society like Eddie is and without any of that history or without any of that information to prove that those people have always existed and will always exist, it makes it very difficult for them to root their identity in anything that makes sense or has its own tradition because for many people that's an experience of living in rural america or all over the world is you may be the only one you know which means you could persist in the belief that you're the only one that exists which is extremely isolating and terribly lonely now i get why edda focuses on i think it amounts to just a few sentences or a very short portion of the book of the unnamed midwife where the midwife makes reference to someone a man who dresses as a woman, I think Breezy was her name, and really tries to use that as a way to interpret or validate or find uh, her own sense of history, that uh, like a place for herself. That's exactly it. And we end up 
doing just that, we end up pouring over our histories and over our pieces of culture and finding just those tiny whispers and examples that, of proof that people like us have existed before. I can't tell you how many of my friends who are, you know, in various places on the identity spectrum, having their first knowledge that these things existed by seeing a joke of a man in a dress or seeing a performer in drag for the first time or discovering some of those wonderful vintage photographs of lesbians from the 20s when they dressed like men and went to clubs and drinking and that when you when you make the effort to erase history or when you separate yourself from the history those small examples that persist are very very important so since Etta has nothing else those two or three mentions in the book of the unnamed midwife are everything you're reminding me of my own experience when I told my parents I was gay and my father said well that's just a fashionable thing that's happening right now <laughs> A lot of kids had an experience like that. Yeah, you can blame it on one piece of media, like suddenly Ellen's gay, and now my kid's gay. Maybe Ellen just taught your kid the word for it. Well, there is something very powerful in the story you're telling when you realize how slow progress can be, or in fits and starts, sometimes very quickly. Some people would say uh, the gay rights movement has moved very quickly, but not when you look against a backdrop of centuries and, and millennia, but in any event, to lose that history after having gained so much is really frightening. And it, it absolutely is. I mean, if you count, if you count the struggle for gay rights since Stonewall, it does look pretty quick. But there are literally there's a millennia of evidence and and suppressed stories. And even now, you'll see stories from mainstream archaeologists who'll find you know a tomb of two men buried together in each other's arms, sharing common goods, you know, with a declaration of love between them. And we'll just be like, hey, look at this, bros being bros. <laughs> they were such good bros. They wanted to be buried together. Like if, if uh, academic institutions and governments allow for that kind of sanitizing or outright banning of our history, then what do we have? How can we claim our own history when it's been taken from us? Well, let's talk about some of the different societies that Edda comes across. She's, she's a bit like an anthropologist. As a raider, she gets to leave her, her town and she travels around and everywhere she goes, you know, it does, it is reminiscent of something like Gulliver's Travels. Like there's a, there's, it's almost like a different universe. Each town is isolated. And so they're really not familiar with the customs of the other locations and, I guess I, I kind of thought of it as each each town was trying to solve the same puzzle, but they were coming up with different solutions. They were they were each trying to figure out how to keep the human race going when there are so few women and so many die in childbirth. And I was hoping maybe you could talk a bit about uh, some of these different towns and how you came up with the ideas for them. Absolutely. So Etta, as a reader, is looking for durable old world goods, anything that was made in the old world that had a, a wealth of manufacturing that they now lack, like good steel tools, uh, printed books. One of the objects she goes after, spoiler alert, is uh, menstrual cups, which make a big difference to a civilization that doesn't have mass production for tampons. But what they're also looking for is stories. And they like seeing how people live in other places so they can report that back. So all these separated little cities and villages, even though they may have something very good, they lack multimedia, they lack news. There isn't really a way to pass messages between one place and another. So as you said, they've all evolved very different pieces of the puzzle trying to solve the same problem. So I wanted to 
extrapolate from some of the ways that people in this world attempt to solve the problem of, you know, how to keep order, but, you know, keep people interested in the, the job of mating, which is, it never ends. But I started thinking about civilizations where even now people are generally gender segregated, you know, women are kept very separate from men. They have separate areas in church or, you know, women don't leave the home or uh, they're kept by their parents so that they can't uh, have unsanctioned uh, dalliances with anybody in their cities. And I, I figured there would have to be some version of that in Edda's world. They would see uh, places where men and women didn't mix or where one or the other were kept in harems or in um, highly regulated breeding programs or where they were at least educated separately from one another or most importantly, what work they assigned to men versus women based on what they think their natural qualities are because I find it fascinating how much that varies from culture to culture even now. There are so many people who assign the work to women that another culture might say that's not for women or to men or vice versa. So I, I really like watching Edda become Eddie or Eddie become Edda based on where they are and what they think that that group wants from men or women. And I, I get to have a lot of freedom in, in taking apart those pieces of the puzzle and, and deciding how that they're going to work it out. And she's really, he, she is really privileged because in one community where the men and women are segregated, she starts among the men as Eddie, and then she sees some of the men being selected for mating purposes by a woman sort of in a, in a, in a ritual and brought off into the woods. And then she can transform herself in the woods and then enter the female part of town. So it really, I don't know, opens doors for her. I mean, it's sort of a, a she's in a fascinating position to to see more of the world than either someone who is only male or only female. I've gotten to read some wonderful accounts from folks uh, who transitioned at, at some point in their adulthood, and they can say things that almost no one else can have that perspective on. Like, I've been particularly interested to read the accounts of trans men who said, yes, the experience of sexism is real. I can tell you that because I've experienced it as a woman, and I've been in male-only environments where the kind of talk that reinforces it takes place. So I can tell you what the effects are, and I can tell you what its cause looks like because I've lived both of them. So Eddie is very, uh, very versatile in that way as a character because they can pass unknown through whichever side they want to be on. So do you have a favorite of the towns she's she's been in? And I kind of suspected it might be Nowhere. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you could just say a little bit about Nowhere because I guess the rest of the story is sort of a reveal about the different places she goes. So we don't need to to spoil the rest of the story. But she starts in Nowhere. And and if you do have a favorite among the others, maybe you could share what aspects you like. I am, of course, quite partial to Nowhere because, you know, I built it to be their home place. And it is among the way that all of these different civilizations work out gender parity and gender equality. Nowhere is is pretty far along. I mean, women are totally free. They don't they don't permit any kind of slavery. They don't take part in the slave trade. They do, in fact, execute slavers whenever they can. And they don't uh, they don't allow for a society that excuses violence against violence against women for any reason or in any capacity and that was very important to me that that is it's sad that that's the baseline for civilization but that is the baseline that i will accept at this point uh, i also really enjoyed writing some of the places where sex was more ritualized and made into a mystery only because i've i've been 
exposed to different religions that try and make it into a more ritualistic or mystifying process. And what that does to people's expectations of sex is really fascinating to me. So not giving too much away, but there is a city in Manhattan, Kansas, that I made into a a scene in this book. And I really got into how weird it could look if you ritualized sex in a society where there was one woman for every 10 men. And let me tell you, it looks weird. So let's take a moment to talk about religion. I noticed that the safest Edda ever feels is when she's with a group of Mormons, and they seem to have retained a lot of their beliefs. And the same was true for the midwife in your first book. She meets a Mormon couple, and it almost looks like she might settle down with them. In the end, she doesn't, but they are among the least threatening characters that she meets. And when I look at the titles of your books with their biblical-sounding titles, the Book of Edda and the Book of the Unnamed Midwife, I-, I wanted to ask you about your relationship to religion and what your books say about religion's ability to contribute to a society's stability. So I'm personally fascinated with Mormonism and the LDS Church. Uh, I'm not a member and I never have been, but I did marry into a Mormon family. So that's given me a a, a very peculiar and and, and a lot of times enviable window into an American culture that many people don't know much about. So when I was thinking about, when I was planning the very first book, when I was thinking about what groups would make it through an apocalypse and, and who, if anybody, would have a lasting social order, I couldn't help but think of the Mormons. Uh, not many people know this, but all Mormon households are um, are instructed to keep food, uh, food storage and water storage enough to maintain their households for two years. That's something most Americans don't do. So if uh, terrible things were to happen, many of the Mormons in your neighborhood would be better situated than you might be. On top of that, they have a, a rigid hierarchical structure and a patriarchal order. So as long as somebody remains who can either claim the title of prophet or bishop on a more local basis they can keep things running for a long time. So when I was thinking of who will still have a recognizable religion in a hundred years, I was thinking who has the best resources and who has the most family oriented structure. I could not help but put the Mormons in that place. So it was actually really fun to write about Mormons a hundred years on. As you said, many of their core beliefs have persisted, but in many other ways they've radicalized and they've adapted to the world that they're in, which frankly the Mormon church has always done. It's been adapting since it was first created. Also, the Mormon church has an unusual history among modern religions in that it has a recent history of polygamy. So if conditions were to once again permit or even call for polygamy, they have a framework for that. It's in their scriptures. And I think that makes them much better situated than a lot of other Christian sects would be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And I also felt like the book of the unnamed midwife, in the way that the, the, the citizens of nowhere relied on it, gave them structure and gave them support to create a cohesive culture. Religion works best as a set of ideas. And ultimately, an idea is a much more durable thing than any tool that you can have. It's a better tool for control than a weapon. So the people who have an idea to cleave to are the ones who are going to make it. A strong man like the the big bad of, of the Book of Edda is only going to work for a single generation, maybe two, if, if they breed carefully. But an idea can persist through multiple generations. So you see that with the idea of the unnamed midwife in the in nowhere. And you see that with the idea of the church as central to all of the things that happen in your life among the people in the Mormon civilization in the future. So is the the title of the Book of Edda a giveaway that 
in a hundred years, people will be using Etta as a, as a role model. Now, you don't have to answer if that ruins something, <laughs> but I just couldn't help but ask because the, the title invited the question, I think. So I don't want to give away too much about the third book, which is going to lean a little bit into what Etta's legacy ultimately will be. But I was really drawn to the idea of uh, people without books, people without the ability to print books without you know, movable type and, and, and uh, the industry to support paper pulp, you know. Uh, people who don't have books will come to rely on diaries. Diaries will take the place of newspapers, of almanacs, of all the collected knowledge of a lifetime. I mean, we don't have blogs or anything. So uh, even even on a, an uninteresting diary, even a diary that just recorded what the weather was like every day could be an invaluable resource to one of these villages. So uh, the, the biblical titles are, are part of that and the passing on of diaries are part of that and all of that is very important in the third book, which is going to be the Book of Flora. Ooh, fantastic. I can't wait. <laughs> Can I ask, is the Flora in the title, the Flora who's also a character in, in the Book of Edda? Yes, you can. Uh, it's, it's the same Flora. The Book of Flora will pick up almost immediately after the Book of Edda, so I'm not taking another big jump in time. I really want to finish up telling the story of what happens to these characters. I won't talk about Flora's secret, but she's quite a fascinating character, so you have to read the Book of Edda to, to figure it out. I ended up falling love, in love with her as a character, which as any author knows is a terrible idea because then you don't want to do bad things to them. But I, I had to follow Flora because her story became the one that was the most compelling to me. Well, let's talk a little bit about your career. I assume things maybe have changed a lot. I, I know when we spoke two years ago, the book of The Unnamed Midwife, it had been published by a small press, and it hadn't been picked up by 47 North yet, but then it was picked up by them, and they're publishing your second book. And at the beginning of the interview, you made reference to the fact that you wrote three books last year. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts about the course your career has taken. It's It's been the best time of my life. I could not have expected that anything would go this well. Uh, I've definitely worked for it. I've, I've worked my ass off every day of my life to be able to do this, but I've also been very lucky and, and helped out in a lot of ways. So Midwife was originally published by a very small press in Los Angeles called Sybaritic Press, and it's run by a couple of women I know who are wonderful at their jobs, but not typically in the business of publishing novels. So I was really surprised when they picked it up. And then uh, as with many indie published books, it didn't sell many copies. It wasn't terribly well known. And it wasn't until I won the Philip K. Dick Award that it even became possible that this book would be anything else. So I also didn't have literary representation until after I won the PKD. And I, I was able to hire an agent, which was very exciting. I have a wonderful, very professional agent who knows everybody. And that's been thrilling. And she helped get me the deal to move Midwife and to republish it through 47 North, who have been an excellent publisher. I have nothing but good things to say about them. They also published Etta, as you know, and that's how it got into your hands. And if all goes through to form, they will also publish the Book of Flora, about which I'm very excited. And uh, it's, I can't even describe how great it is to have my first book come out and get noticed. I mean, most people spend years of their career trying to get even on the short list for a major award. And uh, it, it's been a dream come true. <laughs> I'm having the most fun. And I got to quit my day job, which I had also I had planned to be able to do in about 10 years. So things are happening on an accelerated time frame at this point. Fantastic. Congratulations. I love happy stories like that for writers who 
who get to do what they enjoy most. So, so congratulations. Me too. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've totally enjoyed talking to you. It's been a pleasure as it always is, Rob. Thank you very much for having me again. I've been talking to Meg Elison about her Philip K. Dick Award-nominated novel, The Book of Etta, published by 47 North. For more author interviews, please visit newbooksnetwork.com and click on the Science Fiction link. You can also subscribe to the New Books in Science Fiction podcast on your favorite podcasting app or program. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have.